On October 7 of 2023, Hamas terrorists from Gaza, in an unprovoked attack, surprised Israel when they entered southern Israel and killed more than 1,200 innocent Israelis and some foreigners. In response, the Israeli Defense Force, or the IDF, declared war on Hamas and entered Gaza, killing many Hamas terrorists. Sadly, many civilians in Gaza continue to be caught in the crossfire, or those who have been caught in the crossfire have been killed. The war continues. Tensions and polarized passions around the world have been inflamed, with many taking sides in this centuries-old conflict. Biased history, selective inclusion and omissions of news, deliberate misinformation, or simple ignorance have been shared, causing great confusion and misunderstanding, which in turn divides the world even more. Many questions are being asked. Is Israel justified in its heavy response to the atrocious terrorist attacks? Did Israel deserve to be attacked by Hamas because of their supposed illegal occupation of Palestinian lands? Does the Bible have anything to say about this conflict? Is this war prophesied in the Bible? Is this a sign of the end times? Why should I care about a conflict that is happening on the other side of the world? Should I care about Israel? Should I care about the Palestinians? How does it affect my life? How are we as Christians supposed to respond? Now, we won't be able to answer all of these questions in great detail in this message, but we want to address some of these issues through a biblical framework. Because, as with all things, it is important to look into the Bible to see God's perspective and revealed will on these issues. Since this is a sermon and not a lecture or a history lesson, we also need to extrapolate some biblical principles, life lessons, and reminders for how we should live in light of these current events. Now, I'm going to do something a bit different in this message than I would customarily do in my lectures or messages on biblical prophecy or eschatology. What I want to do is look at these issues and questions through the lenses of God's attributes. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 13. We're going to take a look at verses 14 to 17. The book of Genesis, chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. Genesis 13, I read now verses 14 to 17. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. For those of you who don't know, Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And it is clear from these verses that God has divinely given the land they currently occupy to the people of Israel. And God will affirm this promise again in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to 21. Genesis 15, 18 to 21. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God was very specific. 
Based on the area these ancient peoples used to occupy, the land that has been given to the people of Israel will extend from the Nile River to the great river Euphrates, from present-day Egypt in the west to present-day Iraq in the east, from present-day Syria in the north into the Arabian Peninsula to the south. Of course, Israel today doesn't occupy these lands and has never done so in its entire history. That's why this promise has yet to be fulfilled. But it will happen in the future as God has so promised. You see, the first thing I want us to understand about God's attributes is that, number one, God keeps His promises. God keeps His promises. Our God is a promise-keeping God. If He promised this land to Abraham and his descendants forever, He will surely keep His promises. And He's able to keep His promises because He is sovereign meaning he has complete control over every aspect of history to direct and dictate that his purposes are accomplished and no one can stop him. And he's able to keep his promise also because he's omnipotent, meaning he has the ultimate power to ensure that his promises are fulfilled. You see, we have to understand this about God and who he is before we answer the question, who rightfully owns the land? Without this definitive and authoritative declaration by God of who owns the land, then you and I will never be able to come to a settled conclusion over who owns this land based purely on history. Because arguments can technically be made for both sides of the debate. But as Christian, history helps us see that God's promise is still in effect. The Jews should have been driven out of this land a long time ago. But for centuries, they have miraculously always returned through declarations, regime changes, wars, and even politics. Only through the lenses of seeing a sovereign, omnipotent, promise-keeping God at work does it all make sense. You see, you cannot promise what is not yours. And since God is sovereign over the entire world, He can freely give whatever He wants to anyone He wants to give it to. You know, I can, I, I can say to my kids, kids, when I pass from this earth, I promise to give you a house in the exclusive Forbes Park, all the wealth found in Metro Bank, and all the fancy cars in the PGA car showroom. I can say it, but can I actually deliver? Of course not, because I cannot give away what is not mine. But God can. Historically, Israel has had a presence in the land since the time of Abraham. Only when they were disobedient or disciplined by God were they removed from the land by foreign powers. But it was always temporary, and God always returned the Jewish people back to their promised land. That's why archaeologically, there's great evidence of the existence of the city of David, with Jerusalem as Israel's capital since 10th century BCE. When the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in 70 CE, and Emperor Hadrian planned to replace the destroyed temple with a shrine to the god Jupiter, a Jewish revolt known as Bar Kokhba, the rebellion, broke out. Following the revolt, the Emperor Hadrian decreed that Syria-Palestinia, or Philistine-Syria, or simply Palestine, should replace the name Judea. But Jews, regardless of the naming of the province, still lived in this region with many living in the area of the Galilee for centuries. 
Even when the region was ruled by Muslim rulers after the Crusades in the Umayyad, Abbasid, and Fatimid Caliphate, Jerusalem was never their capital city. Nor was it the national capital for the non-Arab Mamluks, the Turkish Ottomans, or the Jordanians after World War I when they ruled this area. Historically, one can see that there is no such thing as a distinct Palestinian people per se. But the Palestinians today are Arabs who live in the region called Palestine. And historically, the Arabs only came to this area with the Muslim conquest of this region since the 7th century CE. Therefore, if one argues using the logic, who was there first, then it would be the Jewish people before the Arabs. Regardless of if you believe it was a Zionist movement that pressured the British or the UN to give them a share of the land after World War II, the historical truth is that the Jewish people have had a claim to the land centuries before the Muslims and Arabs ever had claimed to the land. Even if you take God out of the equation, the answer to the question of who has relative rightful ownership of the land is whoever was there first. That's why in Canada, the First Nations people have so many extra rights, privileges, and benefits. It is the same for various Native American tribes in the U.S., regardless of how they were treated in history past. Now, you can argue with me that the Canaanites were there even before the Israelites, and you may have a point, but there are no Canaanites existing today who are trying to claim the land. But above all the nuances of history and politics, most importantly, we have to remember that it is a sovereign, omnipotent God who promised the land to Israel, and it is well within His right to give it to the people of His choosing. When I think about what God is able to do throughout history to preserve and maintain His promise to Abraham, I'm simply in awe. God changes empires to ensure that His promises are kept. And my friends, this is the same God who promises us many things. If our God can move all of history to maintain the truthfulness of His specific promises, think about what He can do for you and for me. I'm so glad we have a promise-keeping God who not only keeps His promises, but does not change them. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, we're told that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, another attribute of God that helps us understand this Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to understand that, number two, God is gracious. God is gracious. This means He lovingly bestows upon people things we don't deserve. God's blessings in our lives and in the lives of others are not based on if we deserve it or not, but based on His gracious favor. That's why when God chose Abraham out of all the people in the world to start the nation of Israel, there was no criteria for why Abraham was chosen. It was not because he deserved it more than someone else. It was not because he would be faithful once he was chosen. We saw that Abraham disappointed God even after he was given the promise to be the father of a great nation. But nevertheless, by his grace, God chose Abraham. So we must ask, does God have the right to choose whom he will show his favor to? Does God have that right? Of course he does. In the Bible, 
when it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It doesn't mean God hated Esau and his descendants. Because we see that God does bless Esau and his descendants to become a great people and a great nation. But this phrase just means that God would choose by his gracious act to bless the younger Jacob and make his descendants a greater people and nation than that of his older brother Esau's. This is not a picture of God's inequality and unfairness, but this is an example of God's grace, especially if you know about the troubled life of Jacob. Remember, everyone doesn't deserve anything that we have, and yet God has decided to show his favor. I've said it many a times, you cannot compare grace. You cannot compare gracious gifts. It would be ridiculous and silly to do so because grace is unmerited favor. So there is no need to be jealous and envious of God choosing Israel for a very special purpose because God has blessed all peoples of this world in unique and special ways. So this leads me to the question, do the people of Israel deserve the blessings they've received from God throughout their history? The answer is absolutely not. The people of Israel walked in disobedience throughout the recorded history in the Bible. They were warned by prophet after prophet to turn back to God, but they did not. They adulterated themselves to the pagan world that surrounded them, as the book of Hosea reminds us, and yet... God's gracious love and patience was upon them like a loving parent to their disobedient, rebellious child. Look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 4 says this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. You can almost feel the broken heart of God that Israel continually rejected God turn to other gods, and yet God doesn't abandon them. He doesn't give up on His chosen people. Imagine, the Jewish people even rejected the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born Jewish, one of their own. As a nation, they called for His death while Jesus lived on earth and caused His crucifixion. And yet for all of their historical disobedience and the rejection of the true Messiah, even until today, God's grace is still evident toward the people of Israel by allowing them to survive until today as a Jewish people, as He has so promised. By His grace, God is a plan for Israel in the future because through their national suffering in the future great tribulation, they will, as a nation, recognize and finally turn to Jesus as their Messiah and Savior, the one whom they have rejected for centuries and will be saved. That's why Paul declared in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, that in the future, all Israel will be saved. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 adds this. Zechariah 12, verse 10. 
And I will pour on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as he grieves for a firstborn. The people of Israel will one day recognize God's grace in their lives and in their nation's history and in remorseful humility and repentance turn to the true Messiah, Jesus. My friends, how God deals with the Jews to show forth His grace should serve as an encouragement for us not to be jealous of the Jews, but to also see how gracious God has been in our lives. Through our words, actions, and thought life, do we deserve for God to abandon and leave us a long time ago and pick someone else to bless? For sure. How many times have we made promises to Him that we could not keep? How many times have we told Him that we will never do that sin again only to do it again? How many times does He discipline and correct us for us to learn a lesson only for us to forget that lesson a few months later and sin again? And yet each time, like a prodigal, wayward son returning back to his loving father, we are accepted back when we humbly and repentantly return. That, my friends... It's God's grace in our lives. I'm glad that God deals with Israel graciously and patiently because through that example, I see in the same God one who graciously and patiently deals with me. My friends, our gracious God does not give up on us. The third attribute that can help us understand this conflict is to understand that, number three, God is just and fair. God is just and fair. Listen to what Psalm 89 verse 14 says about our Lord. Psalm 89 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And then Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice righteousness, and upright is He. My friends, God is just and fair, and that means no one who wrongs anyone will get away with it. That's why Romans chapter 12, verse 19 so clearly states, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But you may push back and say, Pastor, How can God be fair and just when there doesn't seem to be fairness and justice with so many innocent people being killed? And further, there doesn't seem to be accountability for those who perpetuate evil. Remember, my friends, no one can escape God's justice. His justice will come whether in this lifetime or in the life to come. That's our only assurance that the omniscient God who sees everything will see to it that those who have done wrong will be punished. If you're looking for immediate fairness and true justice in this lifetime, you and I will be very disappointed. No, it doesn't mean we give up trying to seek justice. But truth be told, there are already so many injustices experienced around the world that it is nearly impossible to call everyone to account in our lifetime. So no one will ever be truly satisfied apart from knowing that our God is the God of fairness and justice who will let no one 
escape what they've done. Just look at Israel. They were attacked unprovoked by their Arab neighbors in 1948, 1967, and 1973. In each of those wars, Israel miraculously won against a surprise attack from their Arab neighbors and gained more territories in those wars. So the question I often ask people who believe that it is unfair for Israel to keep the so-called occupied territories of the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and the Gaza Strip is, if you get attacked unprovoked and you win, then, it is, then is it fair that you keep what you're able to win? I think the fair answer is yes. And yet many around the world are saying, no, Israel, you must forget that you were attacked and that many of your people were killed and forgo the security buffers that you need. Just return everything. Is that what the world demanded of Germany and Japan after World War II? Of course not. To the victor goes the spoils, as they say. It's like if someone came into your house to try to rob you and you were able to chase them off and as they ran away, they left their Air Jordan 13 or their Air Jordan retro Kobe pack shoes in your house or dropped their Rolex watch in your house. I think you would be justified and no one would probably disagree with you if you said that you are going to keep the things of the thief. You see, there was always a two-state solution where Israel and the Palestinians would live in peace in the land. That was the original intent of UN Resolution 181 that divided the former British Mandate area into Jewish and Arab states in May of 1948. But you know who rejected it? It was rejected by the Arab states, and they attacked Israel soon after. They didn't want Israel to be a state at all. Now today, some Arab countries are okay with a two-state solution and recognize the state of Israel like Egypt, Jordan, and the UAE. But many countries like Iran and terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah do not. They want to see the destruction and the annihilation of the Jewish state. So from an objective perspective, God's justice and fairness has allowed the nation of Israel to survive even until today. But listen, but that being said, God will also call to account those in the Israeli government who mistreat the Arabs currently living in Israel, especially among the far-right, ultra-Orthodox Jewish segments of the population and government who do discriminate to a, certain, to a certain extent against the Arab populations and those who are not of the Jewish faith. But our fair and just God will not let them get away with it and will call their lives to account for their actions. Yes, a small group does not define an entire people group. But yet, the actions of a small group can affect the entire nation. Not everyone in the Gaza Strip supports Hamas. Yet, the majority of the Gazans voted them into power in 2006, and their actions have hurt the local people. That is the reality of life. How a country's leadership decides policy and enacts law will affect the people. And if a leader's decision is wrong, then often the entire nation or people group suffers. That's why in this world, it is very difficult to say who is truly in the right and who is truly in the wrong. Everyone has ulterior motives and vested interests. The innocent are grouped with the guilty. And honestly, no one is truly innocent because sometimes people are silent supporters. That's why there's often collateral damage. 
Innocent people die in wars and conflicts. That has been the sad reality since the beginning of warfare. That doesn't mean God is unfair or unjust. Not everyone in Dresden or Hamburg, Germany supported the Nazis, and yet many of them died in the Allied bombings of those German cities to turn the tide of World War II. Many innocent and pacifist Japanese in Hiroshima and Nagasaki were killed when the atomic bombs were dropped by the U.S., trying to force the surrender of Imperial Japan in World War II to avert even more lives lost if they were to have attacked the Japanese homeland. Many innocent Afghans were killed in the hunt for Osama bin Laden in the war against Al-Qaeda and the Taliban after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 in the U.S., If you read the Bible, that is what happened as well to everyday Israelis who suffered because of the decisions of their ungodly leaders. In the debate of what is fair and just, we have to ask if it is a just cause, a rightful defense, or a justified response. And it has to be viewed through the lenses of culpability. Who are the provocateurs, the aggressors, and who is defending, responding, and retaliating? My friends, at the end of the day, our assurance and hope are that all will be made clear and accounted for, even if the war courts are unable to catch every war criminal who has ever committed a war crime. The God who is just and fair will see to it that all will have to answer for their words and deeds. And while we look forward to that day, it is a reminder that our lives will also be judged. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about the judgment seat of Christ, and Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment for both believers and unbelievers respectively. This shows that everyone will be judged for their words, actions, and thoughts. My friends, don't worry so much when you see injustices and people getting away with evil acts. The true King, our Lord, is just and fair, and one day He will judge every person's actions. No one will get away with anything. All those who are caught in the crossfire and those who are innocently hurt or killed will have their justice and vengeance through God in the life to come. This is God's promise to all people. The continual conflict in the Middle East also reminds me that, number four, God protects His people. God protects His people. The fact that the Jewish people have not been wiped out as a people through the centuries illustrates that the omnipotent God can indeed protect His people in spite of what Satan or evil people desire to do. Turn to me to Revelations chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. The book of the Revelation chapter 12, I read verses 4 to 6. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should Feed her there 1,260 days. In these verses, we read that Satan, who is identified and depicted as a red dragon, has been seeking to prevent the birth of the Savior, which he knows will come from the nation of Israel. My friends, don't forget that Satan knows the Bible better than we do. 
He knows the content of what is written in this book, including the prophecies of the Messiah and his own demise and defeat. The woman here represents Israel, and she's ready to give birth to the Messiah. Satan tried to prevent his birth, and if he could not prevent his birth, would try to kill the child. We see this historically, for example, when Haman tried to exterminate the Jewish people under the Persians. And then with King Herod's murdering of all the children in Bethlehem and surrounding area, when the wise men from the east came to seek the newborn king. But whatever Satan tried to do to Jesus, it did not succeed. Jesus dies for the sins of mankind and resurrects on the third day, defeating death and ultimately defeating Satan forever, and then ascended to heaven, as these verses tell us. Now look with me at verses 12 to 17. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us since Satan could not destroy the Savior, the Bible tells us he turns his attention and wrath to the mother, Israel, the nation who gave birth to the Messiah. And this is why historically, even until the present and into the future of the Great Tribulation, Satan will seek to destroy the Jewish people. Verse 6 tells us that as God has protected Israel throughout their history, so he will continue to protect them even until the Great Tribulation by providing them refuge and a place to hide from the future Antichrist who will also seek their annihilation. Simply put, God will not allow Israel to be exterminated in spite of the documented anti-Semitism and historical conflicts since Bible times. Anti-Semitism means prejudice or hatred against the Jews. It is a historical fact. Although this term was coined only in the 19th century, anti-Jewish hatred and Judeophobia, fear of Jews, dates back centuries before the Holocaust, in which the Nazis and their collaborators murdered six million Jews in Europe, was one of the worst examples. For centuries, Jews have been a frequent scapegoat, falsely blamed for catastrophic events. In the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague was destroying Europe, Jews were wrongly accused of spreading it by poisoning drinking wells. It was even said that Jews murdered Christian babies to use their blood in ritual sacrifices or religious rituals. This so-called blood libel led to massacres of Jews between the 12th and the 6th centuries. In the early 1900s, the devastation caused by the First World War made people look for simple explanations. In Germany, the defeated military leaders spread lies that German Jews had betrayed their country, stabbing it in the back and causing them to lose the war. In addition to having lost the First World War, Germany was struggling, like with the rest of the world, through the Great Depression of the 1930s. This made many citizens even more desperate for someone to blame for the economic disaster. It was during this time the Nazi party rose to power in 1933, and they exploited this unrest. 
they began to blame the Jews and depict the Jews as the enemy of the German people. Sometimes called the longest hatred, anti-Semitism has persisted for thousands of years. Also, there is, generally speaking, a long-standing animosity between the Jews and Arabs. Now, it is important to note that not all Arabs are Muslims, and not all Muslims or Jews hate each other. Now, the reason for these situations are complex and have a basis extending back to biblical times. Both Jews and Muslims claim Abraham is the founder of their religion, albeit through different sons of Abraham. Jews claim a heritage through Abraham's son Isaac, born to him by his wife Sarah. Muslims claim a history through Abraham's son Ishmael, born to him by Sarah's servant Hagar. Unfortunately, Sarah treated Hagar harshly at one point, and Hagar fled into the wilderness. There an angel appeared to Hagar during this time, prophesying that her son Ishmael would live in hostility towards all his brothers. And you can read more about this in Genesis chapter 16. So that animosity has lasted for thousands of years. Another is the issue of the land, which we already talked about. But why this land matters to the Muslims is that while Jerusalem is considered the most sacred city to Jews, it is the third most sacred city to Muslims after Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. That's why you see the Muslim Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the traditional site of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There are, of course, other reasons why there's great tensions between Jews and Muslims. And currently in the Middle East, Israel is surrounded by Muslim-majority nations where the radical elements of this religion have called for Israel's extermination. But in spite of the historical animosities and present dangers, God has and continues to protect His people. God protected His people from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, from Nazi Germany to the Muslim Arab nations that surround Israel. Prophetically, there will be a remnant of the Jewish people that remains until the end times. They will not be wiped out. If you ever doubt God's protective ability, just look at the history of the Jewish people. Although you may not believe it, there are Jewish people living today in Israel, Jordan, Iran, Syria, and Iraq, and have lived there for centuries. My friends, nothing happens to us that God doesn't allow. You and I can rest comfortably and confidently in God's protective hands. He can and will move people, change rulers, remove empires, take down regimes just to protect the people that He loves and cares for. In this conflict, we sometimes forget that God loves all people. We look no further than to John chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, for this wonderful truth. John 3, 16 to 17. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Yes, the Lord chose the people of Israel from which the Savior of the world would come. And He has a special plan and purpose for this people group. But that doesn't mean He loves the Jewish people more than He loves people of other races. God loves all people equally. 
That's why he provided salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, for all people. He wants to be in an intimate relationship with people of all ethnicities. Jesus didn't die only for the Jewish people. For as we have studied in the book of Acts, the good news of salvation in Jesus was brought to the Gentiles by the Apostle Paul. You see, the fifth attribute of God that helps us process and understand this conflict is this, number five, God loves all people. God loves all people. With this truth, when we pray, we should not only pray for the nation of Israel and the protection of the Jewish people, but we should also pray for Palestinians, Arabs, Persians, Iraqis, Jordanians, Turks, Emiratis, Qataris, Kurds, Lebanese, Syrian, Egyptians, Yemenis, and others who live in the Middle Eastern region. We should pray for their safety and, of course, that they would come to know Jesus as their personal Savior. You know, there are more Christian Palestinians living in Israel than there are Christian Jews. I count many of these Christian Palestinians as my personal friends. I know them. They love Jesus, the Jewish Jesus, with all of their hearts. We should remember not to mix current Israeli politics and policies with the biblical truth of God loving all people. The Bible tells us that in the future, one day, people of all ethnicities and nations will worship the Lord together. Look with me at Revelations chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. Revelations chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. My friends, the Bible tells us people of all nations and ethnicities will co-rule with Jesus. Look two chapters over at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. My friends, God does not discriminate. His salvation and His reward is for all people. His love is for all people. So remember, when we pray for the people of Israel, we should also pray for the Palestinian people as well. We should be praying that everyone will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. As God loves all people, He cares deeply for all human life. That is why He desires peace. In Psalm 122, verse 6, we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem as we're also called to be peacemakers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. But before Christ comes again, it will be a time of great disturbance. We are living in a time of great disturbance. This war in Israel is a part of the wars and rumors of wars mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. There will be future conflicts. Every day we live, we are one day closer to the coming of our Lord. But this is not yet the end. This is not yet the great tribulation talked about in Revelations chapter 6 to 18 because the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has yet to occur and the Antichrist has not appeared as 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 speaks about. So the world will get more and more unsettled 
and chaotic. While there isn't lasting peace today, as the Prince of Peace, Jesus promises He will bring true peace to this world in the future. One day, when Christ returns, there will be no more wars, no more deaths, no more pain. That is because God loves all people and provided a way of salvation and true peace. Until that day, in the absence of true world peace, the peace God provides as the God of peace is the peace in our hearts we have from placing our trust in Jesus and putting our lives in His hands, knowing that our eternal life is secured in Christ. That's why Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 8 says this. First Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 8 reminds us of this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. My friends, those who have placed their trust in Jesus can have peace in their hearts today and in the future experience a world that is truly at peace. As God loves all people, we should be praying for all people during these times of unheaval, distress, and uncertainties. We should pray that those who do not know Jesus will come to know Him as their Messiah, their Savior. So as this current war in the Holy Lands continue, which is a centuries-old conflict, let's look to the sovereign God who holds the future in His hands. Instead of worrying, getting angry and frustrated, or being drawn into polarized positions, we should instead be reminded that the character of God is something that we can cling on to. And how he operates is consistent throughout all history and throughout all people groups. Remember that God keeps his promises. He is gracious. He is just and fair. He protects his people. And God loves all people. My friends, God is in control. You are not. Remember God's character. It will put a lot of things into perspective as we all cultivate a great commission-focused, gospel-centric, future-hopeful mindset. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who holds the future in your hands. Thank you that you are the God who keeps his promises, that all your promises come true and will continue to come true because of who you are. You are sovereign. You are omnipotent. And although we may be discouraged, we may be fearful, we may not understand what's happening in the chaotic world in which we live, thank you that we can cling on to your character. We can cling on to your attributes. You are a God who is truly gracious, just, and fair. You are truly a God who protects us and loves us. And thank you, God, that you keep your promises. I pray that we as your followers will cling to your promise and have hope until one day we see you. We look forward to that day when we will enjoy true peace with you. But until that day, help us to live as true witnesses, living witnesses for you, showing the world that there is peace amongst uncertain times. In Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.